The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having coffee with Dr. Emre Selly. Dr. Selly is the Chief Scientific Officer at EVRMA Global and is a world-renowned expert in this topic. Dr. Selly, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You were, as we know, born and raised in Turkey. You went to medical school there. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your journey from going to medical school, growing up in Turkey, coming to the U.S., and becoming the, the chief scientific officer at EVRMA. Well, uh, actually, it's, it's kind of a simple story. I finished the medical school, got married, uh, and then um, uh, I was about to start my life in Turkey, but I had this desire to, to do research and combine it with medical uh, practice. And, and an opportunity came along from Yale University. And so I came to Yale in 1995 uh, as a postdoctoral research fellow. And then I stayed uh, as a resident, then a, as a fellow. Then I became a faculty and rose through the ranks and became a professor in 2013. Um, and I, as I had initially intended, I combined you know, seeing patients and teaching and doing research. And my laboratory was funded for by NIH and many other grants. Uh, and then uh, as I became older, uh, I developed an increasing uh, fascination with aging. And um, also I wanted to be able to do uh, research that is more translational because uh, at Yale, I, uh, I was mentored by Aiden Origi, and then after that, my mentor was Joan Stites, who is a, a, maybe not that well-known in our field, but she's extremely well-known as a scientist uh, who received the Lasker Award recently. She's a molecular biologist. So working with her and afterwards through my, my laboratory, I mainly used animal models, et cetera, and, and worked on a number of pathways, but none of my findings were really directly applicable to patient care. And and I, I want to work on aging and do things that are translate uh, that are translated to uh, practice. And so I got in touch with the um, with Dr. Richard Scott, who is a researcher and, and a founding partner of the RMA Global. And uh, we initiated a few projects on ovarian aging together. And after that, uh, we thought that uh, we, you know, we realized that we work really well together. And 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 we complement each other's um, expertise. And at the end, we decided to to do more and more research together. And and then I took on the role of chief scientific officer at uh, EVRMA Global. And right now, I I work across continents despite COVID nineteen, I guess. And uh, and we have a number of laboratories around the world where we do different types of research, and many of them are related to ovarian aging, which is the topic of today. 
um, some in Oxford, United Kingdom, um, two laboratories in, in Spain, one a large one in, in Valencia and another one in Madrid. And of course, uh, one of our biggest laboratory research centers in, is in New Jersey. So let's let's talk a little bit about ovarian aging. We we've worked on a couple of papers together on this, and I, I know firsthand that you're very interested and very very knowledgeable about this topic. Clearly, you're very passionate about ovarian aging research. Of the many many subfields within reproductive medicine, why ovarian aging? Why this in particular? Well, I it's my bias, and I think it is the single uh, most interesting and difficult question in reproductive medicine. But in addition to that. It's a very relevant question, and what that part is, I think, undisputable uh, because uh, because of the whole demographic and social and economic changes that happened to the uh, you know females in the United States over the past five decades, and and you can look at the numbers. We recently analyzed this to see how it changed and how fast it changed, how, how drastic the change was. Um, and if you compare, let's say, just last year to 1970, which is not that long ago, it's 50 years ago, uh, the percent of women who underwent, who, who received a bachelor's degree annually doubled since 1970. And in 1900, uh, less than one in five uh, of people who got ba- bachelor's degrees were females. Since 1990, more than 50% of bachelor's degrees uh, are obtained uh, by women. And, and actually since 2000, more than 55% of all bachelor degrees goes to females. The same goes for master's degrees. Again, less than one in five of master's degrees earned, were earned by women in 1900s. And since 1990, more than 50%. There are more, like of every 100 degrees obtained, more than half is by women. And the same with doctorate degrees. Of course, this this is associated with a delay in uh, in a lot of things related to reproduction, including uh, including uh, marriage. Uh, basically, in 1970, six, more than 60% of women were married. This was down to 50% last year. And uh, I guess the most drastic thing is the median age to get married, which was around 2021 in 1970. And it, it went up to almost 28 uh, by 2018. And finally, the time when you have your first child or the time you, you, have, you deliver a baby also became later and later uh, for women across time. So all these things culminated uh, in the fact that, you know, women are experiencing more and more infertility related to their age. And, and the research related to ovarian aging is becoming more and more relevant. And of course, clinical, uh, clinical interventions re- related to ovarian aging are also becoming more important. That's why I care a lot about it. I, I think a lot of other people uh, are caring about it. And most importantly, I think the emphasis on ovarian re- aging will increase with time, not decrease. Right. That's actually something quite unique to the aging aspect of, of fertility, right? The, the idea that our social practices and our way of life really can impact, can have such a huge impact in, in fertility, whereas maybe other issues are more of a, of a pathology in the classic sense of the word, right? Yes. I agree. All in all, it doesn't really sound all that different, though, from the many diseases that that we count among the most serious, right? Things like Alzheimer's, some that are at least in part due to our increased life expectancy and and the way we live. And I think, obviously, as a result of that, 
a lot of research has been conducted into the field of aging in general and in other cell lines and other tissues. Um, what would you say are the most important research avenues in the field of aging in general, not necessarily in the ovary? Um, and some of the questions that are being asked and answered today about aging. So uh, I agree with your comment before I, I respond to that. I agree with your comment regarding the importance of somatic aging research. And I, I remember hearing that if we cured all cancers, the longevity, the mean longevity increase in, uh, in human will be around five years. Whereas uh, in, at least in animal models, if you affect aging pathways, you can increase longevity by 50%. I don't know if you want to do that. I don't know if we can financially <laughs> afford increasing longevity by 50%, but that is how important uh, the longevity pathways are. Uh, and National Institute of Health has this uh, aging institute where a lot of research is funded in this uh, pathway. And there are, and there are a number of um, key targets regarding aging. And some of them involve uh, the telomeres, uh, uh, methylome changes regarding aging, as well as mitochondria. Uh, I guess I would cite those three as important pathways uh, that are targeted as either diagnostic or, or therapeutic approaches related to uh, aging. So if, if you don't mind, walk us through, walk us through each of those in, in a little bit more detail. Let's talk about perhaps the one of the most well-known ideas of aging, it's definitely the one that's more commonly in the, in the layperson media as well, um, the idea that, that aging is related to telomeres. So telomeres are just repetitive sequences that are present at the end of chromosomes, and, and they, they basically prevent chromosomes from being degraded or getting attached to other, basically getting broken down. And, and with time and through cell divisions, telomeres, become shorter and shorter and shorter. And when they reach this, um, uh, when they become short enough, uh, they may lead to what, what's called senescence, which the cells stop dividing and starts dying. And then the aging ensues. It, telomeres also tie into this, um, this idea of a clock that is sometimes cited in the context of aging, meaning that some people would propose that for the body or for a cell, to know that uh, it is aging, there should be something um, marking the time that passes. And so people suggested that through cell divisions, telomeres um, mark how much time has passed, or and through that, cells know basically when to stop dividing and when to die. Now, you, you also mentioned mitochondria and, and their role in aging. Well, uh, mitochondria is actually is actually an interesting subject because uh, the uh, as you know and people who listen to know well, mitochondria uh, are responsible of generating energy, and be, they do generate energy uh, by using oxygen, and and as they use oxygen to generate energy, they uh, make reactive oxygen species that are not good things, and we know that a reactive oxygen species could cause mutations. Now, why does that matter? It matters because uh, mitochondria are unique in being organelles that have their own DNA. So long, long time ago, around 60, 65 years ago, people proposed that uh, the, the issues um, relate to mitochondria being a source of reactive oxygen species and having their own DNA, and that DNA being necessary for efficient energy production, this whole 
complexity may, may cause aging. People propose that uh, for a cell to be healthy and young, it has to have an efficient energy metabolism. And they also propose that an, an efficient energy metabolism would require mitochondrial DNA to work um, in synchrony, in harmony with uh, the nuclear DNA, which is you know, much bigger and much more important, but mitochondrial DNA is also required for efficient energy production. So they said, as oxygen is being used in mitochondria and reactive oxygen species could cause mitochondrial DNA mutations, uh, it is possible that as human beings or animals age, uh, mitochondrial DNA becomes more and more dysfunctional and leading to dysfunctional energy production and aging. So this, this was a very uh, well put uh, hypothesis. And it was supported by the fact that when people later on generated animal models that, that have increased occurrence of mitochondrial DNA mutations, those animals age faster. Uh, the reason why we are no longer that uh, attached to this story is because when actually uh, older human beings were assessed, we did not find their mitochondrial DNA to, be, uh, to have a high rate of mutations. So although uh, you could age an animal or, or human if you were mutating their mitochondrial DNA, it doesn't seem to be a main pathway to cause aging. So since then, people started uh, concentrating on other aspects of mitochondria. And one of them is called mitochondrial stress response, uh, and which is very, very interesting in a sense that as we as humans can be stressed, our little organelles in, in cells can also be stressed. And mitochondria has its own stress system. And whenever the cell or mitochondria itself is stressed, it has an issue with um, folding uh, proteins and when when mitochondria cannot fold proteins, uh, they tend to uh, initiate certain pathways to take care of the problem. If they can't take care of the problem, the cell basically commits suicides through apoptosis. And and people found that at least in lower animal models, when mitochondrial stress response is is abnormal, it can cause uh, accelerated aging. Uh, so this is a this is an avenue of research for general aging as well as reproductive aging and and also in, in another aspect of mitochondria is that they they tend to fuse and divide so sometimes mitochondria come together and attach to each other that's called fusion and then when they divide it's called fission and 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 when those uh, mechanisms are affected it could also cause um, uh, changes associated with accelerated aging. So in, in trying to find in trying to find a way to understand aging, we found another way we can age that doesn't <laughs> affect us. And then we found other things that do affect us. That's that's science, I guess, right? Just yeah, trying to find something and finding something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one doesn't work, we go and look for something else. But okay. uh, there's a, there's a lot of people who believe that there's there has to be something related to mitochondria one way or another. And there's a lot of animal models that support it. How important it is uh, for human somatic aging it remains to be seen. And the, the last thing you had mentioned was the role of the methylome in yeah. aging. I mean, methylome is more like more of a, like a clock concept. Uh, a, again, people are looking for something that records time. Now, of course, uh, you know, I, I really buy into the clock concept, but you could also argue against it. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and said, but he said, 
well, I have a I have a refrigerator and and it works, it works, it works, and one day it stops working because it kind of works, you know, it's old and and it's not that it has a clock in it that tells you. So that's another view. Maybe maybe it's just that. Uh, you go, you go, and then you give up. But it kind of makes more sense that because we are all, we all seem to be aging in the same speed. Most of us, without you know major dis- diseases, uh, except for people who have major cancers, etc. Most of us, most of the healthy people, seem to be aging uh, with the same speed. It kind of makes you feel like there is a clock in it. And then what people did is they looked at methylon because. If you take away mutations, right, which do not seem to happen, it's not like we're mutating with time under the sun or anything. So our DNA seems to be mostly intact uh, uh, for those people who uh, age healthily. Uh, then there's there needs to be a non-DNA mutation-related uh, recording system, and a good candidate for it is is the epigenetic recording, which means you're you're making a mark around the DNA, but you're not changing the DNA. And for that, people use methylome and methylation of CPG islands in 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 the DNA is is a reg, is an epigenetic regulatory mechanism. Uh, and, and as you know, epigenetics is a way where is a way we use uh, in our bodies uh, to differentiate cells. For example, your eyes and your skin have the same DNA, but your eyes have a very different, you know, function than than your skin. So uh, that is achieved not by mutations, but through opening and closing of gates in the DNA uh, to determine uh, function. Similarly, people said methylation of CPG islands could mark the passing time. And it turned out it's actually true. People developed uh, clocks, one of them that that is widely accepted is the Horvath clock. And, and Horvath is a mathematician who basically sat down, or statistician, who sat down and analyzed 100,000 um, methylomes that are available from human samples. And then he developed a clock based on only 353 sites among millions uh, that can predict uh, healthy people's age. So basically, uh, you can take somebody's blood and analyze the uh, methyl- methylation status of, of blood cells and say, guess pretty accurately how old they are. Of course, you could ask them how old they are, but <laughs> in this specific situation, you can use met- you know methylome analysis, and this is um, this is an important aspect of aging uh, diagnostics and aging research because then, of course, whenever you um, you establish a clock, then then you start uh, being able, then you become able to assess mechanism that can accelerate that clock. So he he and others brought up this concept of age acceleration, things that make the clock run faster. So I think that is a fascinating, fascinating uh, avenue of research. Of course, there are you know other me- metabolism-related uh, pathways that are pursued, uh, but you know we can't discuss all of them <laughs> here. Um, so, so it looks like there's. I mean, we've talked about mitochondria, telomeres, the methylome. There's definitely a lot of research and a lot of resources being poured into understanding how and why we age. And this is mostly being done, as far as my understanding goes, in terms of somatic cells. But your field of interest is aging of the ovary specifically. How much of what we know about somatic cells applies to ovarian aging as well? So, I mean, 
that is obviously uh, uh, the the most important question for us, right? How how much can we uh, borrow? I don't want to say steal, but borrow from uh, from the great researchers that are, that committed their lives to aging per se, and how much of their information is applicable to us. Um, and of course, we don't know really. Uh, we're we're investigating, but we don't necessarily know what the mechanism of ovarian aging is or mechanisms are. Uh, we don't know if it's the same or different from the mechanisms that regulate aging in other tissues. We don't know if ovarian aging can be stopped or delayed. Can it be reversed? And of course, uh, a lot of the things that were uh, implicated in somatic aging are being pursued also regarding ovarian aging. This includes, of course, the other things that I just explained to you the, about like the telomeres and methylome, et cetera. Why do you think it's so difficult to study aging in the ovary specifically? What are some of the, would you say, the biggest challenges in making progress in our understanding of ovarian aging specifically? So it is primarily because there is not a very good animal model for um, human ovarian aging. Whatever the initial mechanisms that, uh, that may cause the aging, the way we perceive uh, the infertility or decreased fertility associated with human uh, ovarian aging is by increased aneuploidy, abnormal chromosome segregation into embryos. And, and there is really not a good animal model for this. And for those of us who use animal models and continues to use, and I, I still have my own animal laboratory uh, at Yale and, and where we do ovarian aging research using mouse models at least, there are issues regarding this, but because the way you approach over an aging research in animals is, is that you come up with a hypothesis, right? And uh, you say such and such pathway uh, should could be implicated, could be causing over an aging, and then you generally uh, affect that pathway. You may generate a knockout model. Right. You may make a mouse with that knockout and then prove that you were right uh, because when you knock that gene out, the the, the mouse becomes you know, infertile because it loses eggs or their egg becomes um, older, etc. However, the, uh, how much this applies to real life scenarios is, is debatable. Uh, in my laboratory, we have found a number of genes that are, that if you, if you lose them, uh, ovaries lose eggs and ovaries look like diminished ovarian reserve patients or they become infertile, but you don't necessarily go to the, your clinic and find a lot of women who lack those genes. So the, uh, the clinical relevance of those findings are, uh, are unclear. I'm not saying these, this research is, is not valuable. I, I personally am, am very committed to doing that research. All I'm saying is that it, will, it is unlikely to have an immediate impact of, uh, of the health of our patients. It's not very different um, from what you were mentioning earlier from some of the mitochondrial research. Absolutely. Then is not really when you actually analyze older people, they don't actually have those mutations. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a very, very good observation. It, it is. It is. And again, I guess people wouldn't mind me saying it because I'm, I'm also doing it. I'm one of them. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not criticizing them. I'm, I'm one of them. I believe in that research because we also need to, you know, even if you don't go to certain places, you need a world map, right? Mm -hmm. you, we, you, a map had to be made. So I'm, I'm all for mapping. However, we have to understand the limitations of it. 
and also uh, there are other there are additional issues regarding uh, there are additional challenges regarding uh, human ovarian aging research and one of them is of course the difficulty regarding getting funding to do human embryo research as you know um, uh, federal funding is not available for research that involves human embryos so a lot of uh, researchers who are in academia or who are very talented and well-trained investigators are unable to actually do experiments on what they should be doing on. They cannot use human embryos. They cannot even touch embryos. They cannot make actually a phone call using federal funding regarding embryo research. And the final thing is, um, is something I, I, I became aware after I started working at EVRMA is some a, a final challenge uh, coming from animal research again, I'm used to uh, having a theory and then testing my theory about a gene or about a pathway by just knocking it out, knocking down the pathway. And when you do this all or none kind of phenomenon, the impact is the effect size is big. There's a huge effect. And then there's never an issue finding a statistical significance. If, if that pathway matters, it's so easy to prove I mean, if you're right, it's easy to prove in an animal model. Right. However, when you go to real human females, it's much more difficult because you can't, first of all, take them and knock out their genes. And secondly, us, the reproductive aging researchers, we are, we are at a disadvantage because what we call young in, in an IVF center is a 32-year-old woman and what we call old is 44. So it's basically 12 years difference, whereas a somatic aging researcher could compare a 20-year-old to an 80-year-old. Right. Right, but in an IVF center, you have the 30 to 30 year old and the 44 year old, which is not that different. So the effect size is not big. And when you add to that all these confounding factors, were they smoking, were they were, were they obese or not, etc., all these things that happen, and you also had to you have to add the male somewhere around there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, although you know we focus much less on the male, uh, so it is not an easy experimental system due to the uh, small effect side. Now, in order to deal with this, you have to have extremely robust uh, experimental systems, which we are trying to focus on. In, in coming back to the specific mechanisms you had mentioned earlier, the telomeres, mitochondria, methylome, how do those apply to ovarian aging in particular? Can we, since it's so difficult to study the ovary in particular, can we just extrapolate what we know about aging in other tissues and apply that to the ovary? Yeah, I mean, I will. I can just focus on, as I said, on the on the three main pathways that I'm that I mentioned. There I, again, there are many different uh, pathways that are implicated in aging. Some of them involves metabolism, etc. But um, for example, telomere. David Keefe, who who used to be an assistant professor at Yale when I arrived in 1995, and then later became uh, went to Brown and New York University and became a chair. He did very high quality research on 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 the role of telomere shortening in in ovarian aging. Uh, and we also at um, RMA, both in Madrid and in New Jersey, uh, developed systems to robustly test uh, telomere length. Uh, Elisa Varela and Juan Garcia Velasco in Madrid uh, used uh, use confocal microscopy uh, with fish methods, and we we have a pretty robust qPCR system, and and we did find uh, differences in uh, in telomere length of um, associated with ovarian aging. Uh, interestingly, we found that 
cumulus cell telomeres tend to be long, meaning cumulus cells seem to remain younger compared to the soma other somatic cells. And, and we, we did not find a major change in the telomere length associated with, uh, you know, women who have diminished over reserve or over aging, et cetera. But uh, uh, again, David Keefe's work uh, suggests that there could be embryo-related uh, changes in the telomere. As far as a mitochondria goes, there is work from uh, a number of researchers regarding the um, association of mitochondria uh, function and, and reproductive aging. Bob Casper's research group uh, had shown uh, the role of CoQ10 in animal models. They, uh, they initiated a clinical study which did show some benefit in activating mitochondrial function. We did find that mitochondrial stress response or mitochondrial uh, fusion, fission, abnormalities in, in, in animal models is associated with a diminished ovarian reserve uh, picture. Some other researchers found um, that mitochondrial DNA copy number as a marker is associated with um, embryo viability. Uh, in the initial two studies that are, that are the most impressive ones, uh, some of them are coming from previous or current EV members, uh, show that increased mitochondrial DNA copy number is associated with decreased uh, viability of embryos. There's been, since then, there's been a number of studies that, that argue that this may not be true in every, uh, every environment. Uh, this includes us. Uh, we, we did challenge this idea. And I think it's, it, it may be associated with the uh, stability of the IVF laboratory, meaning that... Um, I don't know how to say this. For example, TSH, if you're checking TSH in people, you can say high TSH is bad, and that would be correct. Uh, but high TSH within the normal range is not bad. So maybe maybe laboratories, IVF, in IVF laboratories, where there's a lot of variability in, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in the environment, uh, you may be generating embryos that are really immensely stressed. Therefore, they generate extremely high DNA copy numbers, which then is associated with lower implantation potential, whereas in maybe in more stable laboratories, it may be less predictive. So that is where we are, I think, with the mitochondrial uh, assessment. Uh, of course, you know, mitochondrial function or lack of mitochondrial function has been uh, targeted through um, mitochondrial replacement in this, which did not really pan out as, as people hoped. And, and finally, methylome uh, research uh, that is uh, interesting. We, we, we really invest a lot of time and effort and resources for that research. And we found that actually, again, similar to what we found in telomeres, cumulus cells seem to have a, a methylone beige age that is extremely uh, young compared to white blood cells. So a woman who is 33 years old, if you try to guess their age from their cumulus cell methylome, you would find that you would think they were, they're 10 years old. So cumulus cells seem to remain young, both from a telomere and methylome aspect. Uh, but we did find that white blood cells of women who have diminished ovarian reserve seem to, sh uh, seem to uh, develop an older pattern. So uh, it is possible that overall aging is associated with the fertility aspect of women. But this is, of course, uh, very early stages. And, and I think a lot of uh, other investigators will, will, will be uh, pursuing this as, as a research opportunity. 
So some of these some of these discrepancies sort of between the the findings in somatic cells and those in ovarian aging, as well as the gaps between the two, um, bring us back a little bit to the reason why this matters to begin with, right? This idea of, of pushing back the clock, of slowing down time to avoid age-related infertility. And to some degree, I would say we, we've been pretty successful as a field of reproductive medicine in helping women who for whatever reason, choose to delay childbearing, things like uh, egg donation, cryopreservation, other techniques of that nature. Now, before we go into some of the more recent stuff that is currently happening, you, you know I like to ask a little bit about the history and the background stories. Tell us a little bit about how, how we got here. How has what we know about ovarian aging evolved to get us to where we are today? I think for a long time, people knew that as women become older, uh, they are less likely to achieve a, a live birth. From a, from a research perspective, the realization of a decreased uh, oocyte number came from ovarian histology studies where people took whole ovaries and counted follicles. And, and I think Roger Goston's uh, work is, is, should be known there. Within my life, around 2004, 2005, there were uh, some critical studies challenging our acceptance that, you know, women are born with a finite number of eggs and they don't make any new eggs. Uh, the, these were challenged by, by um, you know, Joshua Johnson, Jonathan Tilley, uh, whose work suggested that mammalians may be making, uh, generating new eggs from stem cells. Uh, there's a there's an ongoing debate about this, and and it's it's a long topic for I guess it's for another podcast. You could invite them to speak about it, uh, and the jury is still out. There are also, if we talk about the history of uh, assisted reproduction within the context of ovarian aging, and what we are now able to do to address ovarian aging, uh, I guess we have to go to the uh, to the landmark. Uh, things like the first IVF in 1978 by Steptoe and Edwards, and the first embryo cryopreservation published by Alan Trounson in Australia, who was a runner-up in trying to do the first IVF, uh, but he did the first uh, embryo cryo. Uh, and then some people could be surprised to know that the first oocyte cryo paper was in 1986 by Chan, although it took a long, long time to perfect it afterwards. And of course, the uh, first print and genetic testing, which we now call PGTA uh, uh, by Handicide uh, in 1990. Uh, those are all uh, interventions that today we use either to achieve pregnancy or preserve pregnancy, uh, preserve fertility. Um, I should also mention that uh, oocyte preservation and the perfection of oocyte preservation uh, was uh, partially uh, thanks to strong work from uh, Ana Cobos from uh, EV Valencia. Uh, her work, uh, among others, was uh, one of the key things that bring uh, all cycle preservation to um, what you could call mainstream uh, and establish the significant success that can be achieved through all cycle preservation, but also the safety of the procedures. Similarly, EV and RMA made significant contributions to, of course, perfection of egg donation and, and embryo cryopreservation. Of course, there are other recent brave attempts uh, that target ovarian aging and trying to reverse it or treat it, but, you know, I'm not sure they're mainstream right now. Fair enough. We've we'll talk about those. We've we've come a long way in the 
in the understanding of ovarian aging and, and how it works. And there's still a long way to go. We've also come up with, with some strategies as we just explained to, to kind of mitigate or compensate the effect of aging. Um, but of course these have their shortcomings, right? They, you need to freeze when you're younger, you need to use donor gametes and so forth. So the kind of, of the holy grail would be to be able to reverse this ovarian aging or at least be able to obtain some more eggs from these older ovaries. I know this is your passion and you're currently involved in some of the research in this area. What is What can you tell us about some of those things that are currently happening in the field of ovarian, I guess the term is up for debate, but the field of ovarian rejuvenation or reactivation, if you will? I guess I'll go with the... <laughs> The rule of threes here again. We 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 reviewed three pathways for mechanism, and here I I think we need to uh, mention the attempts on a decreasing aneuploidy, increasing fertility in women who do not make healthy eggs by replacing mitochondria obtained from their own stem cells. Uh, this was uh, attempted uh, as a clinical treatment, and and studies with historical controls seem to show benefit, but actually we did perform uh, at a randomized controlled trial at EV Valencia, and we can, I think, confidently say that mitochondria replacement uh, is not helping. And I, I, you know, I don't mind, you know, sometimes one study shows something and then we do a more robust study and you show that it doesn't benefit. It's it's worth thinking about it though. And, and because replacing a mitochondria into the eggs of a, let's say, 42-year-old woman who produced an metaphase 2 egg and hoping that it will benefit from it, I guess this would be similar to taking a very, very old house and painting its walls, right? You're not really changing the content of what makes that house old. And it is unlikely that it will be extremely successful. So... Uh, despite of my ongoing research on mitochondria, I, I was not very hopeful that replacing mitochondria would help, and uh, I'm I'm sorry that it actually did not. Uh, so, as far as the interventions regarding ovarian uh, called ovarian rejuvenation, or the term I would prefer is uh, follicular activation or ovarian activation, uh, there's been a number of attempts. I think uh, if you go from a chronological order, we should first uh, mentioned the work of Aaron Shue from uh, Stanford, where he um, basically targeted the HIPPO pathway in order to activate cell division and follicular division. And this is kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know the uh, demographics of people who would listen to this podcast, but uh, when when I was young, uh, when we did not have iPhones and, and the computers and the internet and, and, and streaming and all that stuff, uh, we used to hang out on the street, basically, uh, gather after lunch or dinner with our friends. And um, some of my friends were, were like, used to, you know, catch animals, lizards, etc. This is in Turkey I'm talking about. But And you would see that uh, if uh, a lizard would lose part of their tail, it could regrow. And actually, that is hippopathic in action right there. Because when uh, the actin filaments are cut, it activates a pathway that is that is um, conserved through um, uh, in animals of different levels, including lizards and human, uh, and and that can be used by uh, to activate follicles. And what what Shu and his group did, they took over 
they cut cortical strips from ovaries of women who had premature ovarian insufficiency, and they cut those into small pieces. And they also did an did a pathway activation through some uh, targeting the AKT pathway, and they were able to achieve uh, pregnancies and activate follicles. Uh, the key thing to understand here is that you need to have follicles to activate follicles. So they do not claim to create new follicles, but they said that uh, using hippopathic activation uh, by cutting active fil filaments, they were able to activate follicles in some, some subgroup of women who had actually follicles. So after that came uh, the work of um, Sonia Herais and Antonio Pellicer, who, who basically took a completely different approach and tried to basically mobilize uh, stem cells from the bone marrow uh, by, you know, using appropriate uh, medications and then collected blood, isolated the stem cells, and then injected those stem cells into the ovaries through the ovarian artery. And similarly, they were able to achieve um, activation uh, of ovaries in some women. In this case, I believe it was diminished ovarian reserve patients or poor ovarian response, POR patients, not necessarily ovarian failure patients. And of course, the response was variable. Of course, there was a limited number of women who responded. It was not all of them, but some did. And more recently, people have been applying platelet-rich plasma, which you can obtain a woman's own autologous blood. Basically, you collect the blood and you isolate the white blood cells and, and red blood cells. And, and, uh, and then you take the plasma that is rich in platelets, which also has a lot of growth factors. And then people start injecting this into the ovaries. We also collaborated with some of our colleagues in, in Istanbul, Turkey, and initial studies seem, seem to show that at least some of the women do benefit. The reason to mention all these three approaches in the same, in same breath, I guess, is that although the approaches seem very difficult, they're all doing the same thing. Basically, in all these women, there seems to be a significant decrease in ovarian reserve so that they themselves on their own are unable to pull a follicle to be activated and to generate a fertile egg. Uh, so what they do is uh, all these interventions somehow activate uh, the egg or the cells around the egg or the whole environment to help that follicle grow and bring out an egg. Now, what we find, <laughs> although it may sound very simple, from the Atisa ASCOT or the studies in Spain or and also from, from the PRP studies that when you're old, you're old, meaning uh, giving these medications is unlikely to, to increase euploidy rates. So if you are if you are activating follicles in a in, in a woman who is 44 year old, it's quite likely that you may end up with a with an unemployed egg. Uh, but but these interventions, at least in some women, seem to benefit. Now of course uh, the, I should emphasize that this should not be applied to the patients. It should only be under research protocols. And that has been our motto also in RMA. And we are conducting a randomized clinical trial for PRP use. Uh, we did not feel that our patients in the United States would, would be willing to uh, participate in a randomized clinical trial regarding um, the surgery associated with hippopathway. Uh, and also the ASCOT, which requires the interventional radiology to, to go to the ovarian artery to inject, um, inject stem cells. So, but PRP is, is a, easy enough for our patients and we are conducting a randomized clinical trial. And we were interested in, you know, 
the results. We'll see. We'll see whether it helps or not, because it is also possible that these people could just be responding intermittently and 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 that all these studies maybe are just they're just finding that this this random activation. And I should also uh, mention when we discuss experimental procedures, I would also like to mention the work of uh, Nuno Costo Borges and his his colleagues who are doing really exciting work and in in basically taking the DNA from an older egg and putting into uh, an egg that has a, a lot of side, you know, an old, a younger egg with, uh, so that the, you change the environment. And he seems to find uh, pretty exciting results. And again, that also has to be tested in, in, a, in a larger context and multiple centers. So those are, I think, my what the things I would highlight. I'm no, I'm sure there are others that I, I didn't mention, I forgot, or I, I don't know about. But uh, there's a lot of uh, creative work uh, going on, and and uh, we'll see how it pans out. Really, truly cutting edge. Very, very exciting. What what do you see as the future of this field? How do you think we'll see? What will you think will be our view or our understanding of ovarian aging in in ten, twenty years from now? Well, um, as my my very good friend Paolo Rinaldo, who's, who's also a researcher in ovarian biology and a professor at UCSF, would say that there is a market pressure to address this issue. I mean, there is a huge interest. And if there is something to be discovered, it will be discovered because this is really the holy grail of reproductive research today. Now, I'm not necessarily an optimist by nature, so I don't know when it will happen. And and despite of the fact that I'm excited about all new ideas, it will take uh, us... Uh, a lot of data to convince us to apply this as mainstream to our patients. Uh, but I, I do believe, first of all, if nothing else, we would have better diagnostics uh, for ovarian aging and, and to detect women who are likely to age faster than others. That, that I'm quite sure in 10 or 20 years, um, probably 10, more than 20. And then, uh, and then I'm quite sure that uh, our fertility preservation approaches in embryo cryopreservation, oocyte cryopreservation, and ovarian tissue cryopreservation, and, and others uh, will become uh, even better. As far as reversing ovarian aging, uh, that will be more of a challenge. And, and I think it will go probably hand in hand with our success in reversing somatic aging, uh, which is also a very, very active um, area of research. I want to ask you one last question. If you could ask for for anything related to this field of of research, you have one wish. What what would you want? Would it be you know, endless funding, the answer to a particular important question, the ability to do a specific experiment that you've always wanted to do? <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, uh, when I when I joined uh, EVRMA as 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 the chief scientific officer, and when we were talking with uh, Dr. Pelisser and uh, Antonio Pelisser and Richard Scott. I was saying that um, we are out of excuses now because uh, we can ask any question we want now at EVRMA. We have access to samples and actually we do have funding. So the only thing uh, that limits us is, is the technology that's available, the accuracy of technologies that is available and, and, and also our creativity. So um, if I can ask for anything, I, I would hope that the techniques we, which we use, such as attack, seek, or 
next-gen seek-based metalome analysis, etc., to become uh, more efficient because that happens outside of our reach. And that would allow us to really ask questions in a more reliable manner and, and answer them. Uh, that that is the only thing I think that that limits us. Uh, the rest, I think, we we kind of got it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing to talk to you for for the last hour or so. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Bye. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.